Hey guys, this is one of the co-hosts of this program, Wyatt speaking. If you don't know already, these are the first few episodes of our ongoing podcast called Discuss All Monsters. For personal reasons, we took a few month hiatus from releasing these episodes, and in the meantime, we did things like rework the Patreon, we joined up with the Greenlit Podcast Network, and we even secured some awesome future guests for our program. I want to give the first episodes a bit of polishing before we relaunch on October 9th in order to give us the best possible first impression. I think they're great episodes, but I definitely have improved in audio editing in the years since we started. Don't worry, nothing huge was changed. Really, I just cut out some of the crosstalk and cleaned up the audio across the board. We got so, so many more episodes to go before we're all done with this series, so please... Listen to these and then stick with us as we carve our little niche talking about the history of Toho monster films and so much more. Now, on to the episode in question. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Explode When Defeated Presents Discuss All Monsters. Would you like to introduce yourself, Nikki? Yes, uh, I'm Nikki. You recognize me from uh, the, the the illustrious video essays. I have with me here uh, the actual host for this show uh, and Godzilla superfan, uh, Wyatt. Oh yes, so my name is Wyatt. I am a uh, close friend of Nikki as well as a huge fan of They asked me to come on and do something related to Godzilla uh, to fill in that niche that hadn't been covered yet. So I figured that my sexy voice was good enough to fill your ear holes as we do this. What exactly is Discuss All Monsters going to be about besides Godzilla, as we've said? Well, it's not just going to be about Godzilla. It's going to be the entire oeuvre of Toho films, Toho monster films. So we're going to be starting with the original Godzilla in 1954 all the way until Shin Godzilla in 2016. And uh, just before we get really into the meat of the episode, how about we talk about our history with the franchise and our uh, impressions with it? So why don't you start, Nikki? Yeah. Uh, Because I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking in this episode, so I want to give it to you first to uh, go into depth on your personal history with this whole franchise. Yeah, um, so uh, just again to be clear, we're, we're doing like every monster that's been under Toho, or at least all the ones we can get our hands on. So that means Rodan, Mothra, the works. And uh, for, as for my personal history, uh, in my early youth, I was uh, a really big fan of, of Power Rangers and the like, and I, I definitely caught some monster movies on TV uh, from time to time. But I think just the, the rubber suits and the, and, and, and just, just the crafts work uh, with the, with the monsters in Power Rangers and things like that just really drew me to this whole thing. Uh, and uh, made me seek out monsters. Uh, <laughs> regrettably, when I was a child, uh, 1998's Godzilla by Roland Emmerich mm. was a thing, and I definitely watched that and and had my fun with it as a child. But I think I remember more clearly the uh, cartoon that stemmed from that. And I, oh no, I, I, I've just always liked seeing people deal with monsters. And uh, so 
I've always just been into it. I, I really like King Kong. You know that those are good movies. You know, even if the Peter Jackson one is like nine hours long. Yeah, but <laughs> like it's uh, it's just always been something that's like fascinated with uh, me. Uh, and uh, honestly, one of the biggest things I think you probably also share this uh, is um, is James Rolfe's uh, Godzilla Madness series. Mm was a really big stepping stone into kind of learning more about just the history of Godzilla and just how goddamn much Godzilla there was. And just as a preteen and stuff. So uh, I, I really took a lot of that stuff in. Um, and yeah, so, so I've just been kind of following this stuff as it's come, you know, I've kind of drifted more into the TV tokusatsu world and really drank all that stuff in all that beautiful elixir but uh but but i still really do have an amazing love for the godzilla franchise but i know you have also a storied history with it so why don't you go ahead and take it and talk about your history well uh, since i'm gonna be long-winded anyway uh yes i am here to assist nikki due to my uh long history with godzilla and this is not by any means supposed to be a dick waving contest or whatever no 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 uh, but I did grow up kind of being, a, uh, due to my father, a fan of mystery science theater because he used to watch it all the time. Uh, and two very memorable episodes in mystery science theater for me uh, were Godzilla versus the sea monster and Godzilla versus Megalon. Uh, and I will tell you our opinion on those movies when we get to them <laughs> yeah. um, very long time from now. Uh, but those episodes like just dazzled me. I was so amazed by like, wow, this is like, I don't know. There was just something humble, but also like fun and like just constantly engaging. And like, even if they were making fun of it, there was still some kind of like emotional attachment to it. Shortly after that point, when I was about eight years old, uh, I got my hands on the Godzilla Destroy All Monsters Melee game uh, for Nintendo GameCube and probably other consoles. But I got on the GameCube and uh, I played that. And that's when my first got my real look into like, what is... Godzilla as a whole franchise. What are these monsters? Like, oh, that's what Mothra is. Oh, that's what Rodan is. You know, these things that you kind of just pick up from pop culture, even at that age. It kind of introduced me that this thing is a lot bigger and also a lot cooler than I thought it was. Eventually, I would go to this thrift store down the street from me, and uh, it had walls of vhs tapes that like they couldn't fucking give away but i was the dumb kid who would come with my lunch money i would like skip lunch at school and uh keep the lunch money and go there like after school and buy these vhs tapes uh of godzilla movies and i got like godzilla versus king kong uh the 84 godzilla movie got Ghidorah the three-headed monster which is one of my personal favorites uh i just got a bunch of these movies and was watching them on vhs tape all the time i was I was, uh, even though I was like 10, I was really pretending to be like, yeah, I'm into like that retro stuff and, you know, <laughs> yeah, like going yeah. to that thrift store, also getting like old Genesis and uh, NES games. Uh, and then, yeah, when I was a preteen or teen, whenever uh, James Rolfe, whom is the angry video game nerd, uh, did his Cinemasker's Monster Madness, the second year was about Godzilla. And uh, that kind of opened the window for like oh there's like an entire huge back catalog of these movies that i had no idea even existed like that it wasn't just like 10 movies or something like that it was like 30 movies that exist in this franchise and uh just seeing him give these very brief like two minute two to three minute summaries of these movies and just talking about the highlights i became really invested in the series and then uh that kind of carried out 
the next decade or so, I was very invested in Godzilla, just constantly like watching the movies, watched them all, uh, tried to get my hands on them all physically, but failed horribly at that because some of them uh, are very hard to find. Eventually, we come to this point where I had grown into TV tokusatsu. I started becoming a fan of Kamen Rider and Super Sentai. I was, of course, a fan of Power Rangers when I was a kid, which probably contributed to my uh, early fandom of Godzilla. And then uh, that's when we met. Yeah, yeah. And then through that, and then years later, you started doing this uh, Explode When Defeated show. Uh, at your request, I was like, hey, I know about Godzilla. It's an untapped well for you, so why don't we do something like this? Right, yeah. I uh, uh, I was really having a having trouble uh dealing with with Godzilla in my like my grand plan. Oh no, I, I have a hard time kind of uh analyzing movies in a way that uh I, I think feels satisfactory to me and that I can do in in the kind of big bombastic way that I kind of try to do it in the uh in the TV series reviews. So that's why I decided to try and see if a podcast was the best uh method and uh really the only option uh as far as people I could kind of do this with uh was you just because you know we we can have this kind of uh uh very chilled out mellow uh uh but also kind of passionate uh talk through all this stuff and uh we can be orderly about it and everything so yeah so uh, i'm very excited to get into this like i'm elated about this podcast let's go into the topic of today's episode and that would be godzilla 1954 or as it is colloquially called, Gojira, or Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956. Those are all the the different titles, and don't worry, they'll get a lot worse as time goes on. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) there'll there'll be a lot more random titles from everywhere around the world. Right, yeah. (laughs) So why don't we first talk about what is your first viewing experience of the original Godzilla, if you can recall exactly. There may have been a time where I watched it before this point, but the first point where I watched it and understood the gravity of what was Mm -hmm. going on and, and understood uh, the importance of, of the movie was whenever I watched it in my film studies class in high school, um, I had a incredible Incredible teacher, one of my favorites ever, uh, Mr. Carpenter, uh, and mm, uh, he. Shout out to him. Yeah, shout out to Mr. Carpenter. He's a he was an enormous or not was he he is still around. Uh, he's he's <laughs> an uh, he just retired, <laughs> but uh, uh, he he is a huge like Star Trek fan and a huge fan of sci-fi and stuff. So like we would have giant like themed blocks of the of the class. So we first did silent movies and then we moved on to like really early dramas and stuff and then westerns and then we did sci-fi and sci-fi was where it was like obviously my favorite part because there's oh, a yeah. bunch of monster shit and everything but uh the three my three favorite films i watched in that class were outside of one of the westerns but uh, i won't get into that because it's not a western podcast it is uh we're we're godzilla we watched the day the earth stood still and we watched them and them them fucking rules if, if like like i know this is the godzilla podcast but if you ever get the chance to watch them them is fucking awesome yeah and the thing from another world also but like lots of cool sci-fi but godzilla is like something else it is on entirely in a league of its own and mm-hmm. it felt that way and it wasn't just the language barrier or it being from japan and stuff uh it, it, it was 
totally just this this mood that encapsulates encapsulates the whole thing and it, it was it really had an effect on me whenever i was like 16 uh sophomore in high school watching this uh for class and uh watching it for class was just the coolest thing in the world to me too like that was just amazing so uh what what's what's your earliest like i actually don't know this story if you because uh, i don't Ooh. know if you've ever told me so uh what's your earliest recounting of of watching the film so my my earliest uh, uh, entanglement with this great movie <laughs> is, uh, like I said, I would go and buy the VHS tapes. But that was one of the movies that I never actually got on VHS. Mm. But at the time in the mall by my house as well, uh, there was a place called FYE. I have no idea how like far spread it is, so I don't know if oh, it's just oh. a local chain. No, we uh, had FYE. We, we okay, had FYE. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. maybe it's an East Coast thing. Who knows? Maybe, but, yeah. But FYE is a like a record store, but then it also has a bunch of DVDs in it yeah. as well. Uh, and then by the end of it, it had a bunch of crappy, nerdy shit. Yeah, yeah. It, had, uh, a bunch that, of, had, had a bunch of hentai, too, from yeah, what I remember. Yeah. It had a lot of weird <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's a yeah, weird they, uh, store. <laughs> the Godzilla stuff was, like, not with the anime stuff, so, like, I felt no. really embarrassed ever looking at the anime stuff. Like, one of the most embarrassed things that I ever did there was buying Azumanga Daya, which is about the most the least embarrassing <laughs> anime you can buy. But I was just like, oh, I'm 12 years old and yeah, I don't want him to think just, that I just, like girly things. Yeah, just just mortified that you were buying this, yeah. <laughs> like, at that point, uh, like, I would go to that store, like, religiously every single chance that I get. And, like, when I found out, oh my god, they have these Godzilla movies, they had this uh, Toho Master Collection that was released in like 2004. They had like a bunch of the DVDs and they had the Godzilla uh, Raids Again, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, like not all of them, like the beautiful Criterion Collection, which maybe just came out at yeah. the time that you guys are listening to this. So yeah. please get that. Yeah. Uh, I'm imagining it in, in my hands and I'm, yes. and, and I'm, oh. like, I'm crying. Uh, it's like the scene in it's like the scene in Pulp Fiction where they open the suitcase and it's like gold <laughs> light and stuff. That that's that's the Godzilla set. Ah, uh, I yeah. can't wait or do enjoy it right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, it depends on when you're listening. <laughs> yes. So uh, before that, there was like another worse set that just had like a bunch of random movies. Like not all it wasn't comprehensive by any means, but it had all of like the big movies that I could get its hands on. Uh, and I had gotten the original Godzilla and Ghidorah, the three-headed monster uh, at that same time in the original Godzilla. I was like, Oh my God, this finally, I can truly see this important piece of film history. I was probably like 13 at this point. So uh, it was like fresh off of the uh, James Rolfe uh, monster madness right, videos yeah, that he yeah. did. So I was like, it was Godzilla on the brain. You know, I go and watch it and my 13 year old brain almost certainly did not like comprehend 90% of it. Right? Like, I got it. It's not a subtle movie by any means. <laughs> no. uh, but, and that's a good thing, by the way. Sometimes anvils need to be dropped. But I don't think that I truly grasped, like, what made it so good, other than, like, whoa, it's dark, it's badass, and with the fucking people dying everywhere. Like, that was about my engagement with it. Until then, later on, like, I also had a film class, uh, and we did watch a lot of the same things. And uh, like Godzilla was one of them, and I was like, huh, "I've seen this, so I'm gonna ace this <laughs> thing." Uh, and then that's when I started to like kind of really understand it a little bit more, but in a like a 17 year old way. Still, it wasn't truly fo- fully formed, right? Yeah. And then yeah. like I just kind of 
accepted that this movie was great from that point onward. Uh, until about 2016, I watched it again. And then that, as an actual adult, I was like, oh, that's why it's so good. Okay. Right, yeah, yeah. And truly grasping like everything about it. And then this most recent watch through, uh, it's like every time you watch oh. the movie, there's more. Yeah, it gets you kind more of, like, powerful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of, uh, like, I was more in just like shock or like awe every other time before, but I was like, We'll get into it later, but I was in tears at moments because of how like raw and emotional uh, the movie is, just as an experience. Yeah, it, it is. It is a truly affecting piece of art. Like it is, it's something else. It, it is not just a movie. It, it is. It is really, really something else. So, uh... so our format uh, for this episode is going to be: uh, we're going to split it up into two separate episodes because this is a lot to go over the history is enormous yeah and we need to have this long amount of lead time uh so we're going to separate into a history segment and then the next episode will be the actual discussion of the movie and uh, we're going to keep it simple this time and just try to talk about it linearly that won't be necessarily how it'll be done in the future we'll do it on a movie to movie basis because uh, sometimes some movies don't warrant like in-depth discussion of the entire plot. They just have like bits and pieces that are good about them and we can talk about it uh, accordingly. But here we're going to do it linearly uh, and it's going to be separated into two episodes. So this episode that you're listening to right now is just going to be about the history of the movie going forward. And then the next episode is going to be our impressions and breakdown of everything that we think about the movie and our other observations that we have. Yeah, so why don't we get into the production history of Godzilla? And there is a lot to cover. So I will I'm going to take the lead and then I'll hand it off to you every so often for your impressions on various tidbits, because there's there is a lot. Tomoyuki Tanaka came up with the idea for Godzilla when he was flying back from Indonesia. The flight went over Bikini Atoll, the site of the first H-bomb test, and the Lucky Dragon number five incident. Yeah, yeah. T- T- Tomoyuki Tanaka, um, he was a producer that was... Uh, uh, th- he was the producer that went on to come up with the idea. Uh, he was flying back from Indonesia because he was he flew there in the first place to go over a deal for uh, working on uh, a co-production with them. But uh, because of th- some things that Japan has done, there is not good blood between them and production studios in Indonesia. So he ended up just going back fruitless. And while flying over Bikini Atoll, he happened to look over it and just kind of reminisce about this incident where a fishing boat called the Lucky no- Dragon Number no. 5 uh, decided to, to say, all right, well nobody's fishing over at this location because there's all this hubbub about, oh, they're doing bomb tests over there. Well, it's our lucky day. Let's go ahead and fish there and stuff. And they, they were rained on by uh, uh, ash, uh, by uh, nuclear ash, and and uh, one of them horribly died a few months later from nu- uh, from nuclear poisoning. It's this whole like historic thing, and it's uh, reflected pretty uh, point blank in the beginning of the actual film itself, but that is where the idea for the film started. That's where the germ of an idea started in the uh, producer's head, and uh, I thought that was just fascinating. Yeah, that is really interesting, and it's really interesting that every single step of the way in this production, you'll see it, has some relation to uh, the atomic bomb and World War II in some way. Once again, this is not a subtle movie, but 
anvils need to be dropped. Information about the true amount of destruction from the atomic bombs was censored from the U.S. occupation of Japan from 1945 to 1952. During this, films could not directly deal with the nature of the attacks and their aftermath, except in extremely sentimental cases such as Eternal Song of Nagasaki or The Bells of Nagasaki. The the U.S. occupation of Japan was, was really was really strict. There was a lot of stuff that there's a lot of freedoms that were taken away from the Japanese people. Kind of a uh, racist and and pretty mean spirited context after the fire bombings and stuff. Like like as if that weren't enough. Uh, the Japanese were were still under the thumb of of the American forces for another seven years afterward. And yeah, so so during this, you know, there were like, obviously, uh, after going through the things that Japan went through in World War Two, there's a lot of there's a lot of desire for for filmmakers, for artists to try and express themselves about that, about that traumatic experience. And they were very muted. Uh, it, was, it was even in films like Eternal Song of Nagasaki and the Bells of Nagasaki, you couldn't they, they had to be very hands off with what actually happened. It's more of a, like, from what I understand, just from. Uh, light-ish research that I did. Uh, th- they were films that were pretty just, again, just overly sentimental, just very, like, uh, uh, fluff comfort pieces to try to... Uh, yeah, more uh, suggestive than it is, uh, you right. know, like, literal they, depictions of anything. Right. They, they couldn't really hit you over the head with it or really kind of tell you lessons about... Uh, uh, about how humans have 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 done wrong, you know. It, it, it's 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 very uh, again. It was it's very fluffy. It, it was it was very like beating around the bush, and they kind of had to because of this uh, this um, American occupation, which was just terrible. <laughs> the film was called G Project internally as it was being developed. Ishiro Hondo was recruited as director. He worked as assistant director with Akira Kurosawa for a long time. And Eiji Tsuburaya was recruited as a special effects director before this film, and he worked on many propaganda films. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's there, there's a lot going on with with the people that that were recruited for this movie. Ishiro Honda, actually, from an interview that I looked at, um, he he got the nickname God of the Wood Grain, which I think is probably one of the like coolest sounding but nonsensical like nicknames ever, but. The reason for that nickname is that he, he had such an attention to detail and he did a lot of like really impressive kind of one shot like detail oriented scenes for Kurosawa's movies. I think he worked on one of his crime movies. Um, again, I, I'm not so familiar with Kurosawa's catalog, unfortunately. Kurosawa's a big name. Uh, even people that don't know Godzilla know Kurosawa. So uh, Ishiro Honda, though, like, got that nickname because he would he would build up these these sets out of like cheap plywood, you know, just because you, know, you got to cut costs somewhere. And he would just on these cheap pieces of wood, like draw on with a pen, some wood grain to at least make it feel more like home to people that would be there until five in the morning working on certain shots in this film. So that's where he got the nickname God of the wood grain. He's just a really interesting, uh, detail oriented guy. And, uh, A.G. Subaraya is a piece of work. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. He has had quite the life. Did you, you know, he 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 originally wanted to be a fighter pilot and then he went to go to flying school and the guy that ran the flying school like died before he could join so he cool. ended up going like well i guess i'll be an electrician now and he went and did that for a while and then like ended up switching over into like film and stuff cuz he liked 
you know, King Kong and monster movie. Cause King Kong did have like a pretty good, like footprint in, in Japan as a, as a feature. I think there were like yes. a couple spinoff features of King Kong in like the thirties that are lost to time. Like no one knows where they are anymore. They've never been re-released. They're just those, those reels are like gone forever. But yeah, Super Mario just like kind of stumbled into the film business and, and, and it, it's, it's really storied. And like the dude was super old by the time Godzilla came around, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Cause the Shiro Honda, I think would have been around like 30 or something 30 to 40 yeah. whenever this movie was being made but superaya was like already like 60 the dude had some years on everybody and he died in 1970 so so like the guy the guy was like a lot older than i think i i like imagined in my head when i imagined the people making godzilla uh, and there's a certain legend about about his propaganda work um that's pretty uh fascinating he's very famous for his effects work and everything and the reason why like him trying to be a fighter pilot was is kind of important is because he's like weirdly fixated on planes especially if you watch ultraman the fact that like there are planes and a lot of the early ultraman series and stuff is it that's all because of that is <laughs> because he uh, is because he wanted to be a fighter pilot and and he's just been so uh and, and he has a really good eye for detail as well so much so that in the propaganda films he did uh for japan he made special effects and miniature work that were so impressive uh, in the film The War at Sea from Hawaii to Malaya that that people, that American troops uh, and uh, people around the world actually thought that it was actual footage of American ships being attacked. And so he, and so Subaraya was declared a spy and this like followed him around as like a bad story about him. And as like, so, so it got him blacklisted from a good few jobs trying to get trying to get work in, in, in Japan after the war. So, so Toho taking him in was actually like a really, really big deal for him because he couldn't get work for a little while after the war because he was this blacklisted because he, he was doing propaganda work and propaganda work. So impressive that people really thought that he filmed an actual attack that where people actually died instead of like toy planes and toy ships. (laughs) (laughs) And that is, that is some next level, like, that kind of both speaks to how paranoid the American military is, as well as how incredibly skilled right off the bat A.G. Subaraya has been with <laughs> miniature stuff. I mean, like, right, yeah. It, it, we'll talk about it later in the movie, but like, even with uh, in your episode about Ultra Q and Ultraman, like, you go into talking about how the miniature work is like just so incredible and almost like there are things today that aren't as good looking as no, yeah, yeah. some of that miniature stuff that he had his hands directly on. Uh, and speaking of Eiji Tsuburaya, yes, King Kong was actually a huge deal in Japan. It did inspire a lot. I mean, it was just a groundbreaking movie all around the world. When Tsuburaya had saw it in the 30s, kind of left a burning impression in his mind. Like, I need to make something that's like this. Like this kind of movie, a stop motion effect monster movie in that same vein as King Kong. He was when they were given the job to do Godzilla and all of the pieces were lining up. He thought, like, okay, this can be done. However, it might be physically impossible to do for many different reasons due to like the poverty of which Japan was suffering at that time. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so the screenplay like far, far outstretched the bounds of like what they thought was physically possible. But Eiji Tsuburaya was such a person that he thought, well, even if it's impossible now, that doesn't mean it won't be 
if I try to do it. Uh, so he wanted to literally make the impossible possible. So uh, props to him for that. So it was estimated to take seven years <laughs> to produce the film using stop motion compared to the few months. Like yeah. they were given an incredibly short amount of time to make this movie work. Though even the suit method was incredibly difficult. All of this was just groundbreaking. It was just amazing that any of it was happening at all. Popular writer Shigeru Kayama was chosen as writer due to being a horror novelist beforehand, even doing many short stories about mutant sea creatures, very much like Godzilla. I just love the idea that, like, people have just been fascinated with giant monsters well before, like, like the big, like, you know, the, the, the big staple has come around, yeah. you know, that people are just like, wow, man, th- what if monsters were like just really super big? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and like fucking you up, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just God, man, w- wouldn't it be great? Uh, and, and I just love the idea of like, like following Ray Harryhausen and, and following like the way King Kong was done and, and just thinking about just how, <laughs> like, it's super like, well, that's the way they always did it, so we'll do it that way. And then, yeah. like, and then whenever they get it, together like all right ag how can you do this and he's like well you know give me seven years and they're like what you know like, like, <laughs> like just, no 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 we don't have that much time yeah, just, just love the idea of like collaborating with anybody on a project and they're like yeah man give me seven years i'll come back to you it's like what <laughs> no man i can't i can't do that so yeah the, the whole monster thing was in the air i mean uh you know eventually they were inspired by things like the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms and that, that did help a lot with the design of Godzilla. But uh, according to a lot of reports, yeah. King Kong was the main inspiration. And that makes sense, because King Kong was huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Shigeru Kayama, you know, he came in, he wrote, he did the original screenplay for the movie, uh, which was mostly the same. Like, the plot structure was pretty much exactly the same as it was in the movie. But there's, like, some weird, like, it's like the... Berenstein universe version of it. The original screenplay, yeah, it was mostly the same, but Godzilla was motivated by hunger. Uh, he was more of a hungry animal rather than a vengeful demon. Uh, and then the character of Dr. Yamane, he was more morally gray than just like a, a doctor guy that just wants to observe and study Godzilla. You know, yeah, in yeah. the actual movie, his reason for uh, not wanting Godzilla to die is purely from a perspective of, oh, here's this thing that survives and thrives on nuclear power. Like, he doesn't die from that. It just makes it bigger, angrier, more pissed off. What if we could use that to help people? Like, we could study it and figure out what makes it tick. That is taken to... It was taken originally into a more, like, mad scientist level where... uh, like, he just wanted to study it for, like, really no reason other than, like, whoa, it's an amazing monster. We need to, it's the last of its kind. We need to check this out. Uh, and he would even, at points in the movie, sabotage attempts that the Japanese military had to stop Godzilla. And there were some cut scenes as well. Some of them include more time dedicated to showing Sarazawa with Dr. Yomane and Emiko. Uh, there was a scene where the bar was cheering for Godzilla's supposed depth, death. At the depth charge operation. Yeah, that was tough. <laughs> yes, that was tough. <laughs> Giving context as to why Yamane comes home depressed in that one scene. And uh, there was a scene uh, that was more explicit about Godzilla melting oh people with his breath. 
like incinerating them, melting them down with his breath rather than just like, you know, I believe that there is a scene of somebody like being inflamed and running right. around uh, that might, or I'm just completely like Mandela <laughs> effect right now. I just watched the movie, so whatever. But yeah, so it was more explicitly like he is attacking people. He is uh, eating people and everything. So I would love to see the shots that they like would have tried to get for that and stuff just because that sounds nuts to me just him actually making contact with humans and just like like throwing some in his mouth or something or yeah yeah yeah. like melting them down that's crazy one of the uh like the first scene where he's speaking over the mountain yeah uh, he originally had a cow in his mouth but it was deemed too gruesome uh, to be shown in the theater so they cut that out matte paintings were used all over this movie it's amazing that some of them are hard to spot. Uh, the power lines were a matte painting, and obviously Godzilla's footprints were a matte painting. That is another like relic of a cutscene. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the footprints across the beach originally Godzilla. Uh, the scene where they're on Oto Island took like several days instead of yeah. just like one afternoon and then a night. So originally they had gone out to the beach and then saw like these footprints, and then out in the distance. Out in the rocky shoreline, they saw a rock moving. It's like, oh crap, yeah. that's that's Godzilla. That's not a rock. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that shot, you know, is, is a relic of that scene still existing. The power lines thing was really surprising to me because um, uh, the power lines uh, that 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 scene I kind of figured was uh, a composite shot of like miniatures against a composite shot of actual like people and so but but no it's a composite shot of a matte painting and composite shot of actual people which was just crazy to me but uh, 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 because that's because that like image is one of the more uh, I guess impressive images when it comes to people actually trying to stop the threat of Godzilla everything yeah. is that like one of their great ideas is, Oh, let's, let's make a, a, a barrier of just all these like giant electrical uh, power lines and stuff. And we'll stop. And it's just this giant shot of like, like a ton of them just uh, along the coast. And I did not know that was a matte painting that, that didn't seem like a yeah. matte painting. So like, again, 1954 and this, this movie still able to trick me. It's a, just absolutely amazing. It, no yeah. wonder Eiji Tsuburaya was secretly a spy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, of course, yeah. And alongside with the matte painting stuff, uh, there are composite shots just all over the movie. Like, most of the movie really is, is made up of shots where it is half, like, real actors kind of navigating a real space, and then half either miniatures or or half just Godzilla um, so it, it was really, it was really impressive, but also, uh, I believe, uh, from the commentary I was watching and from stuff I was reading, um, 
that's like a really risky way to do things uh, uh, because it's not really through post-production. It would be done where they kind of shoot over the same reel again and then kind of composite it that way. And uh, that's why the movie is probably grainier than most of your you know restored 50s movies would be. But I think it's kind of worth it just because of the, uh, uh, of the immense scale that the movie is able to give off on top of that. Um, also, uh, you know, I got to give uh, big ups to the uh, Criterion set uh, uh, that is bef- that is prior to this new Criterion set, because uh, I have the Criterion Blu-ray of, of Godzilla. There is an interview on there uh, with uh, a, a gentleman called uh, uh, Tadao Sato, uh, who uh, was a film critic from the time that the movie came out. And he had a lot of really, uh, really enlightening things to say about the film. Uh, and uh, one thing that he says uh, that I thought was interesting, and this kind of lends us into our next point, next very big point about the, the movie and its uh, production uh, and one of its biggest hurdles, is that uh, we can't really empathize with really fast and agile monsters uh, that can easily trump humans and uh, are just complete just forces of nature. But mm. whenever you make a monster that's heavier and slower and more methodical like Godzilla, it feels more real because we can imagine we can imagine ourselves as that monster trying to navigate this space for you know for Godzilla walking through a city like Tokyo. It's uh, or at least Tokyo in the 1950s. It's more it, it's like us trying to walk around. You know, so some 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 desks or some 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 like yeah. a really messy room. Sleeping or something. dog. You know, sleeping dog. He also uh, through this, his comparison was the Roland Emmerich '98 Godzilla versus ah. this original Godzilla, and how like the biggest one of the biggest problems with that Emmerich Godzilla movie is that uh, you just cannot empathize with it. Whereas this this old Godzilla is he's really empathetic, even though he's just a, an agent of absolute destruction and is just terrifying. He, he he's something you can actually empathize with because um, just because it's so lumbering and it, it, it's it, he feels like an animal he feels like just yeah. some, just a startled bear and uh, uh, that brings us to Haruo Nakajima uh, who is yes. uh, very instrumental to this movie. Haruo Nakajima was the suit actor for Godzilla. Basically, the Godzilla suit was a goddamn nightmare uh, to be in for many reasons, and we'll get right into that. But just know that it lent itself completely un- unexpectedly into this idea of, oh, here's this lumbering beast that can like barely articulate itself and it's just kind of like yeah. stomping forward. The first sketches of the Godzilla original suit uh, had a more resembling King Kong instead of like the dinosaur that we're all kind of familiar with, with a mushroom cloud-shaped head. They took that basic design element of the like rounded mushroom cloud head and then used some uh, reference photos from, or not photos, but images drawn in a children's dinosaur book, uh, as well as some magazines that were science magazines talking about dinosaurs. And they composited it all together, certain aspects of like a T-Rex or a stegosaur, all these things combined to make it something that is not literally real, but could feel like this could exist. Yeah. Uh, Tazo Toshimitsu did all of the sculpting for the suit. Uh, he was an old friend of Subaraya back when they both lived in Kyoto. The original suit sculpts resembled a sea creature, like the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, with scales, but they eventually settled on the more unnatural disfigured skin texture 
full of linear bumps and tumors too. And I, and I the, love that. It's yeah. so good. Like it I, gives I, the impression of, of yeah. the skin being melted off by the yeah. nuclear bomb. And it's yeah. just like lends to the pain and agony that this thing must be suffering to like make it so upset. The actor would see through the neck of the suit with small holes poked into a lot for some vision and breathing. That's so uh, that's so horrifying. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like it couldn't be big enough that it's noticeable uh like to the viewer. Yeah. It it would get so hot in the suit that the sweat yeah. would pour from his face and go down and like cover up the holes and like obscure his vision and his yeah, breath. So it ended up like backfiring anyway. It's, it's oh man, yeah. <laughs> the more we, the more you're going to hear about the suit, the more it just, yeah. it's, it's going to be disgusting. So why is the suit terrible? Well, uh, the suit was two <laughs> meters tall. It weighed a well in excess of 100 kilograms when it was completed. But when it was asked to move, the suit actor was almost completely immobile due to the crude grade latex that they used. He collapsed in a heap after about 10 steps forward. The second (laughs) suit was much lighter and more flexible, but only barely. The face was more dragon-like and the eyes were painted down instead of a neutral forward to give the impression of conscious malice like it was looking down at the yeah. people as it was attacking them. The suit was still so inflexible though that it could stand up completely like unmanned <laughs> and the holes as we said it they barely helped. Uh even in that second attempt it was still being obscured by his own sweat. Uh the suit would be worn for only a few minutes at a time due to the hot studio lights, the bad ventilation in the studio and the temperature inside of the suit raising to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. The actor passed out several times from exhaustion. That, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's it's horrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Haro Nakajima is the strongest man on earth. I don't know. You can't tell me otherwise. Uh, because because uh, I don't think any other person on the planet uh, like could 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 do that. Uh, I don't think The Rock could do it. Uh, I don't think any 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 big time big muscle man TV star could could have it within themselves to be in a one hundred and thirty degree suit. Oh god! Wrapped yeah. in latex, where they're sweating and just drowning in their own sweat, and oh god, it's just awful. It, <laughs> and this, it, and in a set with like no air conditioning, just awful, awful, yeah, tr- awful. truly awful. And the second suit, <laughs> like the first one, was latex. The second one was like cotton and like enforced with bamboo, so it was like very uncomfortable as right, well yeah, as but- being like completely inflexible. And like the the cotton kept the heat in. Yeah, right. Yeah, cotton is not is not good at uh, taking that part away. Like it's lighter, but it, it keeps heat in. But also, like cotton gets really damp. You sweat enough within like five minutes, and then the cotton's just useless because yeah, it's it's so. I believe I read also that, like with the cotton, they would have to like replace it like all the time because <laughs> yeah, yeah it, just, just, it would just get so awful and musty. Oh and man, gross. yeah, Jesus. Yeah. So with this all. Uh, Eiji Tsuburaya literally, as we said before, he made the impossible possible. According yeah. to him, the poverty of the country that he was living in forced ingenuity and creativity unique to anywhere else in the world. This suit mation is now a respected trademark in Japan's film industry. I mean, it continues to this day. Like, Kamen yeah. Rider is still going strong. Right. Ultraman, you know, uh, is his progeny. And also, you know, Godzilla had... 30 sequels it's uh, uh you know toho's toho has been talking a lot about uh picking it back up to make 
their comparison, not mine, a uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe-esque, like, long-running Toho Monster universe, uh, which I am so excited about. So, you know, like, all this from this one movie, they were able to work within their limitations. Uh, Some people say that the best art is made with significant limitations, and they were able to, to, to work past it, make something that truly was more than the sum of its parts come together and make something that is still being talked about in 20 fucking 19, 65 years after the movie came out with, with just endless sequels. Uh, uh, and which is really strange, uh, kind of, uh, at the same, like it makes all the sense in the world that it would just catch on like fire. People love Godzilla and stuff. People kind of take for granted just how much Godzilla is truly loved and everything. But once we, do get into the content of the movie it's kind of a little funny that this got one sequel let alone 30 and and that that is kind of it's it's just it's just kind of amazing so so since we've talked a lot about the japanese version i do think uh since it doesn't really warrant its own episode maybe we should give a little bit of lip service to king of the monsters the 1956 american version uh with raymond burr it, yeah, you know, uh, it's a movie that I feel like is uh, it, it's it's pulled a lot of different ways. Uh, I think a lot of people maybe growing up, probably a lot of you know older folks and stuff that maybe got their first taste of Godzilla through this version, probably just kind of took it as a replacement for for uh, Godzilla uh, from from Japan or you know Gojira, uh, which oh funny enough because uh, uh, I don't think we mentioned it before, but Gojira is uh, the loan word in Japanese for uh, gorilla, uh, gorira, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, and and kujira, uh, which is uh, whale. Uh, some people yes. probably don't know that. So gojira. Uh, so the the gorilla part definitely is probably still left over from that King Kong esque version that they were working on before. But but with Godzilla King and the Monsters, uh, I, I, so I think some people that had their first exposure to it, they see it as just some kind of replacement, which isn't good because the original is superior uh i I think the some of the effects of that film are dulled by king of the monsters but also i think that people uh kind of i was also on this side of you know just kind of ignoring king of the monsters and stuff but i watched i watched a commentary over it and i think uh, i'm 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 a bit more enlightened to to just why it was so important and why it was kind of the de facto version for a lot of people and it really was just a place and time thing but uh, I do think that it has its place in history. It should not be in any kind of top Godzilla movies list or anything like that. Like, come on, just watch the original. But um, it definitely has its place, and it's important for for a good number of reasons. It was in in terms of in terms of respectfulness. Uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of Japanese films were brought over to the U.S. before King of the Monsters through uh, subtitling. Uh, and and they would do not so great because people just really really were unkind to subtitles back then. Hmm. And weird. and and subtitles were not in the greater world as much. You know, like like you don't. I think this was this was well before I think the sixties or seventies, whenever closed captioning was first invented for TV sets. Right. So you didn't even have that at home, and you uh, especially didn't have it in the movies. And so just because people didn't like it, uh, but I think uh, it, it's really funny to think about that because you look at now, and like a lot of people, at least that I know, whenever they turn on Netflix and they play stuff on Netflix, they just have the subtitles running anyway. 
just so they can kind of catch dialogue yeah. or whatever or things. So subtitles are like totally a non-issue at this point. So that's why it's kind of like, well, why not just put it up subtitled and just not really worry about a dub anymore? But back in the fifties, it was kind of looked at a, as a really respectful move to 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 make the effort to actually cast people and dub a movie. And especially whenever uh, whenever you look at King of the Monsters, they actually restructured the movie to make it a bit more palatable. For, for U.S. audiences, there is some right. racism that goes along with that, like the fact that there is some Japanese dialogue that is not dubbed over, that literally just serves as, like, background noise, which is just utterly yeah. disrespectful. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. uh, just at the outset, the idea for it is well-meaning, uh, because from stuff I was reading, the guy that it was in, that was in charge of tra- Transworld, uh, uh, the company that brought the movie over... He made the company to bring over Godzilla, and then whatever else came afterward came afterward, and right. and that was That's because and that was because he loved Godzilla so much, like he he believed in that movie. And while there are actual named mentions of the bombings in uh, uh, Hiroshima and uh, the H bomb tests and stuff were cut out from the King of the Monsters version, all the subtext still remains completely. Right. It is. Uh, so, so the movie's very still like anti-war. In fact, the sequence uh, of the uh, Japanese military kind of just all getting together and stuff, uh, and 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 running uh, towards you know like building up the pylons and stuff to 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 combat with Godzilla. That's all in the King of the Monsters version, which is pretty unprecedented because 1956 people still had a very negative opinion of Japanese people, and to see in a, in movie theaters just this very triumphant, just all right. The Japanese cavalry is coming in. You're just seeing the Japanese military just kind of just lavishly like given this like amount of space, and I think it's even more triumphant in the context of the King of the Monsters version. Um, it's just that movie's a bit more complicated than I think people give it credit for, which is really interesting. Now, to be fair, yeah, uh, there is probably this element, uh, not to speak entirely in mm-hmm. bad faith of uh, Americans in 1956. Yeah, uh, but there might be this element of like Schadenfreude that goes into like right uh, viewing uh, somebody that was once your enemy getting like attacked by this monster as like a ha a, a little you bit you deserve yeah. that. Uh, there, there might be an element to that. Uh, right. I'm not, I'm not making any like wide historical claims here, but right, yeah, that might be a thing uh, as to why like things like portraying uh, them portraying it in what they believe is a positive light, uh, yeah. the audience might see it. Uh, completely differently well, well some yeah ways. that that is that is the rub that like uh is that is that they had good meanings they had good intent and yes. the movie on its own in a vacuum is fine but yeah it, i think i think audience reaction definitely would have been kind of split like i mean it was popular but again like you said it was probably that schadenfreude there's uh, uh, there may have been some people that walked out and were like, wow, yeah, war is bad. And then some people were like, war's awesome. Cause you get Godzilla from it. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, you know, like, you know, like Americans, people can be stupid. I'm not going to point any fingers, but there's a certain entire half of the United States that might have. A- so, so the thing at the end of the day though, is that King of the monsters swung the doors wide open for a bunch of different, really kind of shady just, just shoddy cuts of uh, Japanese films coming over to the States and just being made for as quickly as possible. They didn't even care about lip syncing in the dubbing, you know, things like that. And that's where you get the negative connotation of Japanese films 
uh, on syndication in the U.S. where it's like, oh man, you know, like he speaks and then his mouth moves for like two more minutes afterward and stuff. So like, and just just the really horrible kind of racist jokes about like Japanese yeah. films and stuff that are made. Uh, and so so I think King of the Monsters, while it's you know not entirely innocent of that kind of stuff, I think. It, it, it really meant well enough to where, like, I think it can still be in the club and have, like, a bit of, a bit of, uh, sharing a little bit of the history of Godzilla. Yeah, because if it weren't, because if it weren't for that movie, we would not have an international craze for Godzilla like we do, um, for better or worse. And I think, uh, uh, it, it's, it just, it's just unfortunate that, that, that kind of well meaning, uh, uh, sentiment was kind of taken advantage of and, and, springboarded just awful worse dubs and cuts of movies yeah it's interesting to note though that uh the last most successful japanese movie internationally was rashomon i do not i did not get the name but there was uh there was like this japanese like writer that was like kind of going around and trying to uh going around to different countries and trying to find what the general opinion of of japan was post the war a few years uh, a couple years before godzilla and every time we'd come to, uh, he'd go to ask people and stuff in, you know, France or the U.S. Or, or Germany or something, it would never be about the war. It would just be, he would ask someone about what their opinion was. And they were like, oh, I love, I love Rashomon, uh, you know, or, 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 or just, just, just like, and, 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 or, you know, I love this samurai movie or something. And he, and he came back and he was kind of talking to people at Toe and, and, and kind of, prior to and this is all from the commentary on criterion and stuff that prior to the creation of godzilla he went back to and he's like it's worse than we thought they just know us from the feudal stuff that's middle ages stuff that's like if all you know about the uk is like camelot you know yeah. <laughs> you know where you don't know anything about the queen or or like princess diana or anything like like you just know fucking king arthur and you that's what you think the uk yeah. is and so 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 they, they kind of so godzilla in in some part and part of the push to make it an american thing as well was to change the perception that people had of japan uh and to kind of give them a more modern picture of japan and i think in a way that actually did help uh that film so but regardless like like godzilla has had just an enormous enormous history and enormous uh yeah, a huge footprint yeah, in pop culture yeah, yeah, uh, yeah there you go uh, yeah but yeah i think in terms of production though that might be just yeah. about it yeah uh, as far so, as uh there's yeah. definitely almost certainly a lot more yeah we, we missed covered, a lot but yeah for the sake of brevity we are going to stop here we're just going to let sleeping dogs lie, as it were. All right, and that will do it for this week's episode. I have been Wyatt, your host. And you can find me at twitter.com slash wasbranger. That's W-A-Z-P Ranger. There you can find some art, some posts about cartoons and anime and tokusatsu. Uh, and you can find me linking to my videos from YouTube. My videos on YouTube, that's under It's Only Magic. I do videos about cartoons. I do videos about anime. So you can find all of that there. And if you ever want to check out some of my art, uh, you can go to twitter.com slash and check out my long, very, very long series of posts that I've made doing daily drawings of every single character and monster throughout all the Dragon Quest series. Huge fan of Godzilla. You're probably a nerd. You probably would like Dragon Quest. So check that out. 
Yeah, you can find me at Twitter at anti underscore laser. Uh, it's the big old beautiful picture of Pigmon that you will see. And I am also the singer and lyricist for two different bands. Uh, you can find releases from anything that I'm involved in uh, on popspirit.bandcamp.com. The bands that I'm in are a very aggressive, uh, very complicated, interesting, <laughs> I guess, band called Pedalfold and a more experimental, kind of adventurous rock uh, outfit called Burned In. I am also the creator and manager of the Explode When Defeated podcast Patreon, uh, where you will find uh, exclusive deets and info and extras for Discuss All Monsters and other associated series. At the $1 tier, you will get a thank you message and access to our off-topic podcast, and a one-day early podcast release for Discuss All Monsters without ad breaks. At the $5 tier, you'll get everything I just mentioned for the $1 tier, as well as early access to exclusive miniseries we'll be doing, two of which are going to be the original Common Rider series and Planet of the Apes. Neither of those are available just at the moment, but anytime one of those becomes available, you'll be the first and only ones to be able to access it, through this Patreon. After every episode, after a miniseries is complete, that will show up on uh, on Spotify, but if you want to be the first and if you want to follow along with us, please check out that Patreon. Also, if you want to give us $1,000 a month, I'll call you Boss Hog. So tune in twice a month for, uh, for new episodes of Discuss All Monsters, and uh, thank you very much for listening, and that's our sign-off. <laughs>